Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It's Katrina Blowers here with you on Thursday, the 5th of August, stepping in for Tom Tilly. And on this morning's briefing, we take you through the Afterpay story. This is a fascinating ride involving a millennial Sydney entrepreneur, his astute next-door neighbour, billions of dollars, and the world's top influencers. The Kardashians reached out to Afterpay via the Afterpay website in the November sales, wanting Afterpay switched on because the Kardashians thought they'd be able to sell more um, lipstick. Yeah, so that's the backstory of Afterpay, the biggest corporate sale in the Australian stock market's history coming up in just a moment. But first, Natasha Belling is here with the headlines. Hello, Katrina. Let's check what's making news this morning. And Queensland authorities have called on people to follow COVID restrictions, saying they may have to extend the state's lockdown if cases can't be brought under control. If we don't do something really, really, really special in Queensland, we'll be extending the lockdown. So that was the Queensland Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, speaking there. She's warning all Queenslanders not to try and find loopholes in the lockdown rules. Apparently, there have been lots of people going to Bunnings and doing various other things, non-vital shopping, even online shopping, she's warned us against as cases continue to rise. Acting Premier Stephen Miles echoed those calls, telling residents of the 11 locked down LGAs in and around Brisbane to avoid any unnecessary purchases. Now is not the time to buy outdoor furniture. There will be time before summer to get sun lounges. Yeah, come on guys, don't buy sun lounges. Uh, Queensland recorded 17 new local cases yesterday. 16 of those were linked to the Brisbane schools cluster. And the other one is that Cairns pilot, which was announced yesterday. Yeah, Katrina, the lockdown of South East Queensland was originally supposed to end on Tuesday, but was extended until Sunday afternoon earlier this week. And a school in Melbourne has been closed and thousands have gone into isolation in the city after a mystery case was found in a teacher. So that's definitely one to watch today. A group of health experts is calling on Australians not to wait for the Pfizer vaccine and to get AstraZeneca as the government warns lockdowns will continue if only 50% of people get vaccinated. That group includes former Deputy CMO Nick Coatesworth and former Australian of the Year immunologist Ian Fraser. Yeah, so some impressive names there. Those medical leaders using a letter published in The Australian to call on all Australians in an outbreak to get a first dose of AstraZeneca or Pfizer vaccine as soon as possible. That plea coming as Treasury analysis published by News Corp shows Australians will still be locking down 20 times per year. That's costing almost $30 billion if those vaccination rates don't get past 50%. The former minister behind the federal government's commuter car park scheme has spoken publicly for the first time about the program, saying it wasn't about pork barrelling. The commuter car park sites were chosen on the basis of need. Yeah, so you might remember that came under a lot of fire, that car park scheme. The former urban infrastructure minister, Alan Tudge, was speaking yesterday there, saying he wasn't aware of the locations of the parking lots being decided by electorates. The $660 million program was supposed to build 47 car parks at train stations. It was slammed by the Auditor-General in June, who said sites for the lots in Sydney and Melbourne were not chosen based on need. Tudge also said he wasn't aware of a spreadsheet which showed the top 20 marginal seats that the Auditor-General said had been used to decide the location of those car parks in the lead-up to the last election. 
Meanwhile, it's a story making headlines right around Australia and around the world. Former Australia Post CEO Christine Holgate has received a massive payout of $1 million from her former employer. It's extraordinary, isn't it, Katrina? It sure is, and the company said it was making the payments without any admission of liability, and that Ms Holgate had released Australia Post from all legal claims. How good is this story? Australian athlete Peter Boll says he's reflecting on his extraordinary performance after missing out just on a medal by just half a second at the Olympic 800 metre final last night. I put myself in every chance. I think the only thing I regret is the last 100 tightening up a little bit. I'd be lying if I said I'm pretty happy right now. Um, the goal was to win, so we still have to reflect up on that. Oh, that audio courtesy of the Seven Network. I think we're all on the edge of our seats there. And have you seen that beautiful vision of his family celebrating? They don't care that he came fourth. I don't think any of us care that he came fourth. No. In our eyes, he's, you know, among the very, very best in the world. He's the first Australian to run in the final in over 50 years. The gold medal went to Kenya's Emmanuel Korea. Meanwhile, Aussie basketball star Paddy Mills, this is incredible, says the Boomers are ready for their biggest challenge of their Olympic campaign when they take on Team USA in today's basketball semis in Tokyo. For us to be able to be the best, we have to beat the best. And we have an opportunity in front of us right now to be able to take that step. That audio, also courtesy of the Seven Network, the Kookaburras will be in medal contention today, but for gold as they face off against Belgium in tonight's men's hockey final. Meanwhile, in the women's football, the Matildas will be playing for bronze against the US and an Aussie squad will take on Latvia in the women's beach volleyball semifinals. I think people were thinking that there wasn't going to be that much more to watch after the swimming ended, but there's still so much excitement happening in the Olympics and so many reasons not to do homeschooling or any. <laughs> work. <laughs> <laughs> We're all at home glued to the TV. What I love, Katrina, about the games is there's so many great stories. As we mentioned earlier, he's bowled us over with extraordinary efforts. Fancy taking up athletics just at the age of 16 and yet again showing us, uh, you know, beautiful Peter, the importance of uh, coaches and teachers spotting talent in young athletes as they're coming through the ranks and the fact that they work so hard and train so hard to get this moment of glory. It's just extraordinary. Well, it has been an absolute delight having you with us today, Tash. Thanks so much for stepping in. Up next, we're going to take a deep dive into the backstory of Afterpay. Hello, Katrina Blowers here with you with today's briefing topic. All right, so business stories, they can usually be a little bit boring, but bear with us because this one is different. Tech stocks riding high on news of the $39 billion afterpay takeover. Square announcing plans to buy Australian fintech company Afterpay in what's been the biggest takeover in Australian history. The biggest takeover in Australian history. We learned about this on Monday when the US company Square announced that they'd agreed to pay $39 billion for the Australian company Afterpay. So to give you an idea about what a $39 billion valuation means, it means that it's now bigger than Coles, Woodside. It's almost as valuable as Telstra. So in this briefing, we'll take you through the Afterpay story. This week marks a major turning point in what's been a wild ride. To some people, it's a dangerous credit product that can get people into debt. To others, it's been one of the most divisive stocks on the market because of its skyrocketing share price. And to other people, 
it's a very inspirational story of entrepreneurialism mm. and innovation that could inspire more Australians to do amazing things like this. And Tom, you have a particular interest in this story. Yes, I do. Full disclosure, I bought some Afterpay shares two years ago, so that really got me interested in the story, so I've kind of very been following clever. it closely. <laughs> Not a huge <laughs> amount, um, but definitely enough to follow it very closely, but I feel like this story has just gotten way way bigger than an investment story now. So that's why we're going to go really deep on it in this episode. Yeah, and so the characters involved are the founders. Nick Molnar, he is just 31, and his former neighbour, who's still pretty young, 49-year-old Anthony Eisen, they started the company as a thought bubble six years ago. And we're going to get the full story on this with two AFR journos who've written a book. Great timing. Jonathan Shapiro and James Ayres are the authors of Buy Now, Pay Later, and they join us on The Briefing now. Great to have you on The Briefing, guys. What an amazing week to be releasing this book. So much interest in Afterpay. Take us back to the start of the story, because the rumour is that these two guys met tanking out their bins as neighbours. Well, yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of founder mythology, and you always have to kind of go and uh, confirm whether it's true or not, because sometimes it gets convoluted but I think where we kind of landed and and they're a little vague is Nick's dad Ron was taking out the bins and uh met Anthony and 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 some variation is that Anthony Eisen asked Ron why this why this light was on all the time at odd hours because I think Anthony was working late hours because he was trying to arrange the sale of these companies in London that an Australian company owned so he was working odd hours and he'd come home and see the light on. He thought they were dealing in something. One of the family friends said he thought they were dealing in drugs actually. (laughs) (laughs) Nick was actually dealing in jewellery and um, was staying up all night um, packing boxes from the family jewellery store. His mum and dad owned a a shop just at Wynyard Station. I think Nick was very ambitious. Um, I get the sense he was constantly pounding Anthony for ideas and opportunities and... He looked up to Ant, didn't he? Like, he wanted to be an investment banker, Nick. You know, luckily for both of them, <laughs> I suppose, Nick was encouraged to um, to home in on the uh, on the jewellery selling <laughs> and work out um, how you can maximise selling more um, jewellery online, which ultimately, obviously, became the, um, yeah. the focus for Afterpay. This is a brand new way of using money, essentially, and they created mm. it from nothing. It, they met some resistance in the early days selling their idea, didn't they? They met resistance from a, a lot of um, consumer groups. Uh, they thought it was uh, afterpay model was exploiting a loophole. You know, they were lending you money and providing you with credit, but they weren't saying that, and they were they didn't want to adhere to the responsible lending rules because they didn't feel they were lending money. They, they kind of called it responsible spending, and um, the consumer groups were concerned that a lot of young people that might not have been able to afford to buy something were, were using afterpay and. Um, were using it too much, you know, and using them and others, you know, so they would have multiple buy now, pay later accounts. So there's more of an acceptance with buy now, pay later. I think it's kind of taken mm-hmm. a life of its own, but but there's still resistance and it's not without reason, I think. It's, it's just how we allow this to flourish and, and make sure that nobody gets harmed and it's all done fairly. Yeah, so this is something you explore in the book is how they manage to stop the government from really cracking down on their business and introducing much tougher regulations like credit card companies and banks have to deal with. And there's been this sort of constant shadow hanging over the business that there would be these tougher restrictions which might completely ruin their business model, but it's never quite happened. And you explore how they've been able to keep those political forces at bay. How did they do it? There were multiple levels of of regulation that were coming at them. In early 2018, it all kicked off. Uh, you had the Australian Securities and Investments Commission 
start to investigate the sector, uh, responding to the consumer groups. And they found a whole range of different concerns. You know, one in five users of Buy Now, Pay Later were, were overdrawing in their accounts and they were raising red flags for ASIC. The ASIC report, though, never went as far as saying this thing needs to be regulated. It always sort of held short of that. But the spectre of regulation was... Um, was hanging over the company and that then triggered Senate committee reviews. There was one in um, 2019. It was, um, you know, a hothouse of, of criticism and then you had the Reserve Bank come in over the top and say, should we res- designate these guys as a payment system and should they be allowed to mm-hmm. prevent merchants passing on the fees? So how did they uh, keep them at bay? Is it, did they, well, was there some really well, intense lobbying? Was there anything dodgy? What happened? Lots of little things, you know, like they were prepared to go on both sides of the aisle, you know, and meet politicians on both sides. So when the consumer groups weren't getting any love from the coalition, they would go to the Labor politician and they'd say, oh, yeah, I met those guys. They're kind of cool, aren't they? Like disruptors yeah. taking on the banks. And, and then they kind of <laughs> walk back with their tails between their legs. So it is old-fashioned diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they hired very um, clever uh, people who were doing that government relations role. They hired, um, you know, independent lobbyists to work both sides of the aisle, as, as Johnny said, and yeah. basically warned off the... Um, the regulators, in a sense, to not hobnobble a young and fast-growing Australian yeah. business. And I think one other thing po- worth pointing out in defence of Afterpay is they did have a compelling counter-narrative to the regulation. Whether it's right or wrong, again, we, we tried not to make of you. But, I mean, like if you compare Afterpay to credit cards, it's quite a compelling argument. Like if you have a credit card, you get into debt. Credit card companies, they do. I mean, it's just simple economics. They want you to stay in debt. So you have a revolving outstanding balance that they charge interest rate on. Just pay the minimum. Yeah, but the whole business model of Afterpay is relying on the fact that people are going to default on their payments at some point, right? There's a key metric or a key performance or key kind of goal of the companies to make less and less of their total revenue or take from late fees. So I think they almost thought 80-20 was a comfortable ratio. You know, 80% of their money comes from the merchants, 20% comes from late fees to cover all the bad debts and stuff. So where did it end up? I think it was at 20 it, it's and it's... about 15% now. Effectively, the model doesn't rely on the customer paying the sorts of interest charges that credit card economics rely on. And the credit card is only profitable because there's a proportion of customers who don't pay on time and then get hit with a 20% mm. penalty interest rate that makes it a very mm. profitable product for a bank to issue. In Afterpay's case, they, mm-hmm. they flip that model on the head. They take some late fee revenue from the customer. It's a diminishing amount for the overall company, but they make the retailer who's selling the goods mm. pay after pay the fee. Mm. So that was the innovation of the yeah. model that mm. actually genuinely did flip it around uh, from being right. a, a traditional yeah. credit product. Yeah, so going into the American market was a really key piece of that puzzle for success of Afterpay. That was pretty hard to crack, I would imagine, for an Aussie tech company. They were very unfortunate to sort of nail a very big retailer in Urban Outfitters as one of their first retailers to come on board. So there was a bit of a buzz around that. And then they were um, pretty lucky, I think, to get some huge influences on board uh, in the US. One was um, Kim Kardashian, who sort of tweeted about Afterpay uh, in late 2018. And they pay her for that? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't no they didn't. So. In fact, wow. um, the Kardashians uh, reached out to Afterpay, uh, Nick says, via the Afterpay website. Oh. It was an inbound <laughs> inquiry in the November sales, uh, wanting Afterpay switched on because the Kardashians thought they'd be able to sell yes. more um, lipstick. Nick <laughs> frantically got the thing turned on in a, in a day or two and um, once it was live uh, and working, um, Kim tweeted that out to her millions of followers. Oh. 
the moves in the US were obviously fairly well considered and they've panned out pretty well. You know, fast forward to the point where we've seen this massive deal announced this week, $39 billion. Squares bought it. Did you guys see this coming? Because you've released the book the same week this was coming out. We we read it at the at the start of your book that they didn't agree to doing a full-blown interview because they had too much going on. They didn't feel like it was there yet. Maybe they were already working on this deal back in January when they were speaking to you. What do you guys make of this? Well, we didn't see it coming, but... To be frank, it's terrific for us because it's come at a good time and it, it may creates all this extra buzz around. You've got to write another chapter though, surely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like literally the deal was announced at 7.30. By about 8 o'clock, I got about 40 text messages asking me when, when the next chapter is going to be written. <laughs> I have to pay a, a being mimicked by others. But when you look at Square, I mean, it, and I think the reception to the deal this week has been pretty positive because it does make strategic sense for both companies <laughs> for Afterpay. Yeah, Square is so much bigger. Afterpay's found someone that it's worth $40 billion to. So it might not be worth $40 billion to a lot of mm. people other than Square because it just kind of completes. And that's what a good deal is. That's what a good yeah. deal is. I've got to say, when I was reading this, I thought, this sounds like a movie. It's a bit like um, The Social Network. You mm. guys may be talking to Aaron Sorkin about doing a script about this. <laughs> I'm not talking to Aaron. It'd be interesting to think who would be cast in, in that. They are an interesting uh, team and, and, and combination they're quite different and they've also got, you know, common uh, characteristics. I mean, I think they're both extremely hardworking and yeah, motivated and, um, you know, Nick uses the word hustler a lot, you know, they, they like to hustle and, um, you know, obviously extremely ambitious types. There's a lot of other people who've gotten rich out of this. A lot of people have made yeah. $10 million plus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like, yes, Anthony and Nick are kind of the, the quote-unquote heroes, but I think... Something like this, which is just like a massive like hurricane that stormed through the Australian system. And I also almost think some of the kind of naysayers, in my view, are heroes too. You know, they've stuck to their conviction. Other people will disagree with me, but um, success is also a function of your critics as well. So um, I think some of those, it was never personal, you know, the people that kind of dissed on them. But we write a lot about the critics and I I hope that the critics don't come off badly because I never wanted them to. They all what they their criticisms, whether they were investors or consumer advocates or they were very reasonable and well argued in their criticisms of the company. They weren't pounding the table and just being objectionable. They were actually considered. So so heroes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that was James Ayres and Jonathan Shapiro. They've written a book called Buy Now Pay Later. It tells the whole afterpay story. They might have to add another chapter because of this big square deal. Um, and I definitely think, Katrina, there's enough big characters and enough of a story here to make it a movie. Maybe not as good as The Social Network, but maybe. <laughs> With a little bit of creative licence, yeah. perhaps, but it is a fascinating story. And you can really hear, like, these guys have been doing deep research on this for, you know, years now. And they're still so excited mm. to tell the story. It is so fascinating. And tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to sit down and have a chat with Dr Nick Coatesworth, who's going to tell us who to listen to, where to get our information from and how to filter out all the white noise when it comes to the vaccine. Listener.